Crisis Counselor Toolbox, bringing you practical tools for recovery from mental health and addiction issues. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. CEUs are available on demand for this presentation through our sponsor, All CEUs. Go to allceus.com slash counselor toolbox to register. The biopsychosocial impact of addiction on the individual. I've never figured out whether you should hyphenate that or not, but I can tell you that uh, Spellcheck does not like the word biopsychosocial. Little detour with me there, you know, too much coffee this morning. So over the course of this hour, we're going to examine the biological, which is the physical impact of addiction on the individual. We'll examine the psychological impact of the, of the addiction on the individual and examine the social impact of addiction on the individual. So as you guessed, today we're really just talking about the individual. So let's go ahead and get started. The biological impact can be direct or indirect. One of the direct impacts of addiction is tolerance and withdrawal. And when we think about addiction and tolerance and withdrawal, we usually think about substance use and addict, um, cocaine, alcohol, methamphetamine, those sorts of things. But in reality, any addictive behavior can produce a tolerance and withdrawal situation because of what happens with the um, dopamine pathways, your reward pathways. So I've got a little video. It's a little bit slow, but I think it's really important that we understand how tolerance and withdrawal develops because then we can also understand how the brain fixes itself um, and really accept that the impact of addiction is biological, is physical. It's not just a moral or um, willpower sort of thing. So, hopefully, and yay! I love it when things come together. So in the previous video, we talked about the reward circuit in the brain at sort of a broad level, and now what we're going to talk about is how that works at a lower level, at the neuron level, so that we can discuss issues like tolerance, addiction, and withdrawal. Now, behaviorally, tolerance just means that you get used to a drug so that you need more of it in order to achieve the same effect. So let's look at how that works inside your brain. So let's take a look at what's happening with the neurons here. So imagine that this is the axon of one neuron and the dendrite of another. And then in here is the synapse. All right. So then we have these neurons that are coming from the VTA and they're sending dopamine. So imagine that you've just taken some cocaine. So all of this dopamine is flowing, pleasure signals going crazy, pretty happy. Okay, so tons of dopamine. And what normally happens here is that the postsynaptic neuron has receptors for certain neurotransmitters, such as dopamine. It has these little spots for the dopamine to come and it gets taken out and it sends the signal on and that's how you experience the euphoria. It's that stimulation of the neurons along that pathway. Now, in a normal situation, if your stimulus had been, say, a hug or something, then, then you would still experience this feeling of pleasure. 
but then your brain chemistry would go back to normal after a second. It would balance itself out. With drugs, long-term stimulation can actually alter your brain chemistry. So what happens when your brain is just constantly overstimulated with dopamine, it's too much for it. And it tries to balance it out. Believe it or not, you don't always want to be super duper happy. Or at least your brain doesn't. So what happens after a while is it says, okay, I need to calm down. I'm going to shut down some of these receptors. So that way, the same amount of drugs won't cause me to be so overstimulated. I won't get as much of a high from the same amount of drugs. So when that happens, that is called tolerance. Because you have built up a tolerance to the same amount of drugs and it doesn't have the same effect anymore. Now with drugs like cocaine in particular, this can cause a problem because you've started to develop a dependence on it. We usually talk about a combination of sort of emotional dependence of feeling like you need the drug as well as a physical dependence. You actually experience negative physical symptoms without it. So once you've built up this tolerance. So I'm going to pause her for a second right there and just highlight the fact that once those receptors start to shut down, in order to feel quote unquote normal with average everyday happy things, you're not getting, the dopamine comes into this synaptic space, but there's not enough receptors to grab it up before it is reabsorbed. So once the brain starts recovering, it'll open those receptors again. Um, it's really self-protective. It's keeping it, keeping you, keeping the brain from being overstimulated. Um, but it's important to realize that now that those other receptors are shut down, the person is going to need the drug in order to start to feel normal because normal things don't produce the same effect anymore. And you still want to feel that high, you end up taking more cocaine to get the same feeling. And so then you just have to keep kind of increasing your dosage over time. Okay, so that's what happens if you have just free and steady access to drugs. You just keep increasing your dosage up to a point. On the other hand, you might not always have access to the drug. And if you go through a period of not having it, then that is when you experience withdrawal symptoms. So remember, now your body has gotten accustomed to this very high level of dopamine. And it's gotten accustomed maybe to not producing it on its own, but relying on the drug. Once you start taking cocaine, I mean, things like chocolate and hugs won't make you quite as happy as the cocaine does. You to end up seeking out this cocaine and the pleasurable sensations it can produce in the place of other types of stimulation. So then without it, you don't have the same level of dopamine. Your body's not producing it on its own. So you tend to feel uh, depressed and feel highly anxious. And the specific symptoms will vary by type of drug. Sometimes you'll sweat, have headaches. Um, generally, anxiety and depression are pretty common. And when those are extreme enough, you'll really do whatever it takes to make yourself feel happy again. And the thing is, though, you're not even going for the euphoria anymore. You're going for normal. Once you've built up this tolerance, you need the drug to feel normal again.
not even euphoric. And this is usually a sign that you are addicted to the drug, which means that you feel a need to keep taking it. The good news is that even though withdrawal is miserable, just like your brain can get used to the presence of drugs, it can get used to the absence of drugs again. So with some time and effort, even if the drugs have caused some irreparable damage to other parts of your brain, you can get your reward system back to functioning at a more normal level. Okay, so um, that gave us a real quick look uh, at, um, let's see, let me get this off the screen, tolerance and withdrawal. So as she explained, not only does the reward system have an impact on just that immediate reward, but the withdrawal syndromes can lead to feelings of depression, anxiety, agitation, etc. So, basic neurobiology, addiction, any type of addiction, whether it's behavioral or chemical, produces a release of dopamine. The drugs, and she didn't really talk about this a lot, but the drugs pre prevent the reuptake of dopamine, which keeps the level of dopamine in that synapse really high. Those abnormally high levels of dopamine in the brain lead to the desensitization or shutting down of the receptors. The other thing to remember is addictive behavior can deplete the dopamine in the presynaptic neuron, which basically means you run out of juice. Um, people need time between stimulation in order for the brain to rebalance itself and recover and make more dopamine, which is synthesized actually from um, foods that we eat as well as um, you know other amino acids within our body. Which leads us to looking at addictive behaviors like gambling, sex, internet, that can just cause constant overstimulation of the brain. The indirect biological impact can be things like reduced immunity. We know when we're not sleeping and we're, when we're agitated, um, we tend to get sick more quickly. We tend to get sick easier because your body is so focused on trying to rebalance itself. It diverts some energy from your immune system and people start to get sicker easier. I remember every single semester I would get sick at the end of the semester because I was not a great student and I would wait until the end of semester to study. Um, so I wouldn't sleep much at all during finals week. It also causes a greater risk for disease, hepatitis, HIV, tuberculosis, MRSA. Obviously, some of these are from our bloodborne pathogens. So if you're sharing needles or swapping bodily fluids, um, TB is airborne. With a reduced immunity and increased increases in risky behaviors, there are indirect biological impacts. More rapid aging. I think all of us have seen the pictures of people before crack and after they were using crack for 15 years or methamphetamine or whatever the case may be. You look at mugshots and you can see a progression where somebody goes from looking like they're 20 and five years later they look like they're 50. And you're like, wait a minute, is this the same person? Your body, again, cannot make collagen. It cannot repair itself if it is just trying to hold its own against all of the drugs and behaviors that are preventing it from taking care of itself, like good nutrition and sleep, which takes us to sleep difficulties. When you're using, 
you may not sleep well, you may not have good quality sleep, or you may not think you need to sleep at all. Um, a lot of patients that I've worked with that have been on stimulants like cocaine and amphetamines will tell me they go, you know, days, sometimes a week or two without sleeping, which causes the body to really get worn down. When you're in a withdrawal situation, anxiety and depression can also cause changes in sleep. Nutritional deficits. Now this is sort of you know, an indirect cause, but when people are engaged in their addiction and they're really just in the midst of it, figuring out whether they're eating healthfully and they have three colors on their plate at every meal is the last thing on their mind. So nutrition tends to go for what's easy and what's accessible and what's affordable. And if it's not affordable or if they don't have money, if they have to choose between food and the drug, guess what they're gonna choose? So I don't think I've really, I can't think of a patient that I ever worked with that came into treatment in residential settings that was nutritionally sound. I mean, most of them had been neglecting their own physical health, not only because they were focused more on the addiction, but because they had also developed such a self-loathing, they didn't care to take care of themselves at that point, which takes us to our next slide, psychological impact. The direct impact of drugs is euphoria and relaxation for a little bit. This doesn't last forever. When the drug starts to wear off, the person experiences depression and lack of pleasure. There's not enough dopamine there. The dopamine system's starting to get hijacked, so they're not feeling it just in everyday activities and that sort of thing, which can cause feelings of depression. So this insufficient dopamine is one of the causes. There's also a serotonin imbalance. Dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, all of these neurotransmitters, we're not gonna get into a bunch of that right now, but they work in harmony and they balance each other out. And there's a certain ratio, if you will, that they have to maintain. As serotonin goes up, things like acetylcholine go down. Acetylcholine makes people feel more agitated, more on edge, it's one of your more, um, anxiety-associated, stress-associated, fight-or-flight-associated hormones. When we're talking about somebody who's depressed, their serotonin has gone down, so now that acetylcholine is going up, and we often see people with nightmares, sleep problems, um, agitation, and anxiety. It's all because everything's starting to get out of whack. The indirect effect of substance abuse on the individual. We talk about depression and anxiety, and I want over here, I want you to remember the symptoms of depression and anxiety. Loss of pleasure in activities, confusion, difficulty concentrating, sleep problems, and agitation or slowing of motor movements. So when we talk about the psychological impact, we're talking about these symptoms, you know, Depression and anxiety is just kind of shorthand, what these issues look like, and I try not to use the word disorder, um, because I really believe that everything we have is a functional response of our body to try to say, I need to protect myself. So when people start to feel depressed, it may look different for you than it does for your neighbor. But 
some of the common things that we see in people who are starting to feel a lack of pleasure in things day in and day out, a sense of hopelessness or helplessness, their sleep changes. They don't care about what they're eating. They may have feelings of guilt and worthlessness. They may be overwhelmed by the mess that they see they've created when they kind of sober up. So they may dive back down into the addiction because that initial pain, whatever reason that they started using, whether it was a neurochemical imbalance or something that happened that overwhelmed their coping skills, likely that issue is still there. So when they sober up, they're not only not any better off than they were to begin with, but they're probably worse off. And you can imagine when you don't feel well, you kind of wake up and you realize this, it's like, I'm going to bury my head for a little bit while, a little bit longer. The same thing um, is true about anxiety. And I talk about depression and anxiety together a lot because they really have a lot of similar symptoms and they can co-occur and do co-occur quite often. The important thing to remember is this lack of sleep. What does it do? Well, think about some time when you haven't had enough sleep. It makes getting day-to-day -day activities done that much more difficult. It just feels more overwhelming. Um, when you haven't had enough sleep, are you really concerned about making sure you have a three-course or a four-course meal planned for dinner? Probably not. You're probably just barely able to muster enough uh, motivation to get off the couch to get something to eat. Guilt is there. So you can see how um, as the neurotransmitters get wonky and as it becomes more difficult for somebody to experience pleasure from day-to-day -day seemingly simple activities, um, like she kept talking about hugs and chocolate, the only thing I can really relate it to that most people, you know, can go, ah, I get it. It's like being like Eeyore all day long, every single day. You know, when I listen to Eeyore, I think it must be really exhausting to beat him and to get through the day. So those pleasure chemicals are all out of whack, makes everything else more difficult, which can make people feel hopeless and helpless, which leads them back to using, and you can see a negative downward spiral. The social impact of addiction on the individual. Isolation. And when I talk about isolation, it's different for different people. Some people completely withdraw from all social support and all social activities, period. Other people withdraw from supportive, healthy relationships. And they could do that by either pushing those relationships away because the healthy relationships, the healthy people are going, you know, Jim Bob, I've got some concerns about what you're doing here with the drugs or the internet or whatever it is. For Jim Bob, that addiction is making the pain tolerable or making the pain go away for a little bit right now. So Jim Bob's going to protect that because nothing else was really actually getting the job done. So he may protect that at the expense of the relationship and eventually those healthy relationships may choose to leave. And just be like, okay, when you're ready for help, I'm here. Or they may not, but um, they may choose to leave and just shut that door. New friends, if the person does make new friends, often share the same dysfunctional thinking. Uh, we call it stinking thinking in recovery. 
minimization of the problem, minimization of the impact of the problem on yourself and others, rationalization, why you needed that drink, why you needed that hit, why you deserve it, and blaming, because everything is always everyone else's fault. It's never your fault. Going along with that stink and think and our cognitive distortions. And again, that's for a whole other class. I don't want to get stuck on that. But you can see where as Jim Bob starts to mess up the neurotransmitters, as Jim Bob starts to feel not okay, as he needs more stimulation to feel, quote, normal, life gets more difficult. As life gets more difficult, he may seek out something, usually the addiction, to numb or help him deal with the pain. As he does that, it exacerbates the problems um, biologically, physically, and socially. So the total picture is one that um, we really want to look at. Someone who's become physiologically less able to experience happiness or pleasure is going to have a hard time dealing with life on life's terms. Think Eeyore. I mean, think about if no, just nothing really made you happy, it would be hard to get motivated to get up. This leads to a desire to find that feeling, find some motivation to feel better, and keep that feeling or protect the addiction at all costs. A lot of times when I'm doing family education, I help or I try to help people sort of envision the addiction as this person's um, suit of armor or their best friend, it protected them when they couldn't find anything else that quite got the job done for whatever reason. And it may have been that they chose not to let people in. It may have been they tried to handle it on their own. There are a whole host of reasons that someone may resort to the addiction um, in order to protect themselves. But it's important for them to remember them the individual as well as the family, that that addiction has protected them and getting rid of it is terrifying. If you think of it as the addiction was sort of their best friend, the one they could count on, the one that was always there, the one that didn't let them down, you could argue that, but <laughs> um, at least in the moment, it made the pain go away. So ending the relationship with their addiction is overwhelming. Taking off that suit of armor and exposing themselves is very threatening. You know, pull a turtle out of its shell. I don't even know if you can do that. Don't try that. I'm not suggesting that. Sorry, random thought. Um, <laughs> but it is like the turtle shell. It keeps them safe, um, or at least it makes them feel like they're safe. And pulling them out of that situation can feel very threatening. So I want to watch another very short video, and I really love this video. It's like three minutes, um, where Dr. Gabor Mate talks about addiction and why we need to consider behavioral addictions in addition to chemical addictions as, hey, addictions. We're not differentiating very much here. It's interesting to see or to ask who becomes addicted. People can have sex with the they do it, they end up shopping, but some people become severely addicted to all these patients. 
is a pack of cards addictive? Well, no. Well, yes, depending on the individual. So it's the same process no matter what the addiction is. The only difference is really is that the substance addict is getting the dopamine from an outside substance, whereas the behavior addict is having it triggered from the particular behavior. If I speak to a group of 100 people or 1,000 people and I ask, well, how many of your addiction issues to any substance, a number of you will put their hand up and you say, what did it do for you? Not what was bad about it, you already know that, but what did it do for you? What was positive in your experience with it? Well, it gave me a sense of peace. It gave me uh, pain relief. It made me feel more connected. It made me more confident. I could speak now and interact with other people. In other words, the addict is just after wanting to be a normal human being. And the real question is what keeps them from having those qualities in their lives and what happened to them? And so that the addiction should be seen not as the problem, although it is a problem, but it's not the problem. It's the addict's attempt to solve a problem in the first place. The Addict's Charger Experiences Studies, done in California, looked at conditions such as physical, sexual, and emotional abuse in a child's life, the loss of a parent through death, or a rancorous divorce, or a parent being jailed, or a mental illness in the parent, or addiction in a parental violence in the family. And for each of these adult childhood experiences, the risk of addiction goes up exponentially. But then a male child has had six of these adverse experiences, his risk of having become a substance dependent injection using addict is 4,600% greater than that of a male child with no such experiences. Why is that? It's because that trauma shapes the brain in such ways as to make the addictive substances more appealing to the individual. That trauma also gives that person the pain that they will try to then escape from or to soothe through the addictive behaviors. It's the social and emotional environment that shapes the actual biology of the brain. So if you understand somebody's addiction, you need to look at what creates pain in their lives. So the person who occasionally has a beer, occasionally uh, uh, smokes marijuana, but genuinely has no negative consequences, does not impair their health, does not endanger their lives, it does not impair their personal relationships. You can't call those people addicts and you can't call those behaviors addictive. So that we have to make a real distinction between the use of substances and the addiction to substances, which then brings us to the war on drugs. Basically, the war on drugs is being waged against people that were abused and traumatizing children and have mental health problems. There's enough punishment in there in the negative consequences of the addiction that we don't have to add punishment out to that. So addiction has both direct and indirect consequences for the person. Biologically and physically, it messes with the brain, the immune system, sleep, nutrition, all those basic foundations. If you think back to Psychology 101, um, Maslow's hierarchy, what's on the bottom? What forms the foundation of Maslow's hierarchy? It's biological. Are we getting enough food? Are we getting enough sleep? Are we getting adequate health care? Safety comes next, which takes us to psychologically. For a lot of people with addictions, they are their own worst enemies. Safety can be external, putting themselves in situations where they can get um, diseases, putting themselves in situations that are hazardous, but it also can be unsafe in their own head. They can have some of the meanest, unkindest things to say to themselves. 
So helping them create a situation that is physically safe and nurturing and pleasant. Now remember those neurotransmitters are kind of wonky. So early recovery, this is a tenuous road. And psychologically, where they are not constantly beating themselves up and holding on to guilt and remorse and should'ves and could'ves and all that kind of stuff. Um, and interpersonally, the consequences generally push away those social, sober social supports. And we know from research that sober social support, well, social support, is our greatest buffer against stress. So if you take someone who has um, a lot of stress in their life and you take away all of their healthy supports, then they're left to kind of balance that on their own. If they started out 20 yards back, if you will, with neurochemical imbalances from depression, trauma, etc., then it's going to be harder to form relationships and harder to deal with life kind of on life's terms. So we really want to use some of this information. You know, you may be asking, why do we need to know this for um, licensure, for certification as an addictions counselor? Well, Part of it is because it helps the person with the addiction as well as the family understand that it's not a simple disorder. It is not a simple cause and effect. This happens, so this has to happen. It's important that we educate the clients about all the things that may impact their desire to use, their ability to feel happy, and give them options. You know, I said during the addiction, and the video said it, the neurotransmitters are out of balance. They are not feeling normal. So we need to help them figure out what they need and to feel normal. Uh, one of my patients one time said to me, you know, I do really good for the first week or so after I get out of detox, but then everything is gray. There's just no color. I can't stay clean when life is just, gray and blah all the time and that really hit home with me because this particular client was someone who had relapsed a number of times but he had identified that one of his biggest hurdles to staying clean while his brain rebalanced itself while his brain healed itself was this grayness this lack of pleasure this lack of motivation that we can deal with so you know it started out by asking him when you feel gray, what can you do to help yourself feel better? And sometimes you can do things, going on a walk, getting more sunlight, not withdrawing, um, going to a meeting. People can list things, but sometimes that's not enough. Some people will need at least a short course of uh, psychotropic medication to help them get through this period until their neurotransmitters get rebalanced. Not everybody is going to have to be on antidepressants for the rest of their life or anti-anxiety, you know, like something that's not addictive, like Boost Bar. Um, but it is important to recognize that there is a lion's share of people with co-occurring issues that may need to be medicated for a significant period of time. So talking with them about what that means to them as far as... Um, recovery goes? How do they feel about having to take medication? Um, 
Some people will argue that taking medication is forming a dependence on another substance. And I try to make the analogy that it's kind of like a person who's diabetic taking insulin. Do they have to have it? Yeah, they certainly do. Do we have to have a certain amount of serotonin? Do we have to have a certain balance of neurotransmitters in our brain? Yes, we certainly do in order to not only just feel normal, but things like serotonin, which are involved in um, depression or antidepressant medications, are also responsible for how we experience pain, our energy levels, our, some of our sleep-wake cycles. It's not simple. We can't just say this one neurotransmitter is responsible for this one thing. It's responsible for a variety of things. We need to help people understand that and that they need to figure out biologically and physically what they need. The cool thing is a lot of patients are really on board with trying to live a little bit healthier. Now, I'm not talking about going to the gym, running five miles, and eating a complete vegetarian diet or something. I'm talking about small changes, trying to get some reasonable sleep, trying to um, pay attention to some sleep hygiene, looking at which of these symptoms, depressive symptoms, if you will, or anxiety symptoms, are causing them the most problem, and addressing that. We have to address the addiction. We have to address the withdrawal symptoms and the cravings, no doubt. But we also have to recognize that these symptoms, these withdrawal symptoms and cravings, are representing a client's need or attempt, if you will, to balance out and feel normal. So we've got to figure out how we can help them feel normal in a healthy way. All aspects of the person in recovery must be addressed. If you don't feel well, if you're tired, your stomach hurts, you're foggy headed, it's hard to work on changing your thinking and being like, okay, let's see, is that an irrational thought? No, most people are just like, really, just leave me alone. I want to sit on the couch and watch Oprah or whatever's on TV and just not deal with life. It's hard to change physical habits when you're depressed and unmotivated. If you're not experiencing, I don't want to say a euphoria, but a pleasurable feeling from anything in life, you know, motivation is our body's way of saying, yeah, let's do that. We have to be motivated. We do things. We're motivated to do things that produce a reward. We are not motivated to do things that produce a punishment. So if everything you do or nothing you do, as the case may be, produces a reward, then what's your motivation to do anything? Now, say that again because I think it's an important concept to really help people understand. If nothing you do produces a reward, what's your reward? What's your motivation to do anything? We need to help people start finding rewards and finding ways they can find just glimpses of rewards. Have them keep a list of, during the day, identify three things. Three is my favorite number. Identify three things that made you smile. I try to stay away from words like happy because they're like, I'm not happy. 
I'm just barely getting by. Okay, I got that. What made you smile? And, you know, it could have been a fleeting thing. It could have been a squirrel on the side of the road. It could have been a sunrise or a sunset. But it helps them identify some things in their life that are bringing a glimmer of hope and happiness. We want to build on those. Before long, they will find it's easier to find things that made them smile. And maybe even, oh my gosh, laugh. Encourage them to do things that make them happy or make them laugh. Laughing actually does release happy chemicals. Um, so if they have a particular comedian they like, I know I have a bunch on my iPhone. And if I'm having a particularly challenging day, I may turn those on so I can just have a good old-fashioned belly laugh and get stuck or immersed, not stuck, get immersed in that monologue for just a few minutes to get out of my own head. With our clients, one of the greatest challenges is helping them get out of their own head. But even if they get out of their own head and they're starting to feel better, without social support, it's really hard to keep it going, to keep the momentum going. I mean, even think about something like New Year's resolutions. We say we're going to start working out three times a week. First week in January, work, work out three times a week. Second week in January, we're pretty sore. And yeah, we know it would be good for us. And we know that, you know, we can do it. So we go. Third week in January, we're still sore. And if we don't have somebody going, come on, you need to get to the gym, people are going to start dropping off. Which is why if you go to a gym, you'll see in January and sometimes first couple of weeks in February, the gym is packed. By the time you get to March, it's usually back to normal or a little bit above normal because most people have gone back to their old way. They didn't have the social support to hold them accountable for these new behavior changes and these new thinking changes because it's difficult. And if somebody calls you out, it is much easier to identify. Most of the time, we can minimize, rationalize, and deny our way out of anything. But if you have a sponsor or a coach or a sober social support that you know gets it, they can call you out on your stuff and be like, no. No, staying at home and watching TV all day with the blinds drawn for three days in a row is not helping you feel better. These social supports, sometimes it's just common sense, but it's necessary. We need somebody outside of ourselves sometimes to give us that little bit of a kick in the butt. So I'm going to ask for questions in a few minutes um, because, you know, there may be. Everybody's been, y'all have been quiet so far. If you've watched this and participated in this program for CEUs, you can log into the classroom at allceus.com and take the quiz. How did I do that online? Um, if you've watched and participated in this presentation and want CEUs but haven't yet registered, you can purchase access to the quiz and certificate at allceus.com.